Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at The Canteen, one of our weekly segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This week, we continue our current series called Lynchpin. Without this, your faith is going nowhere. We're continuing to talk about grace and its centrality in the Christian life. This week, Pastor Blake looks at Titus 2.14 and how grace shapes everything about our identity. So let's listen in as he brings us this week's message. Um, I want to invite you to find Titus chapter 2. We're going to have it on the screen here in just a minute, and I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read this together and then pray for our time in the Word. We're camping out, if you're new with us, we're camping out in Titus all fall, and we're on week four of five, uh, just working through these, these verses, these five verses about the grace of God. It's the linchpin of our faith. Without this, our faith is going nowhere. So let's read this together and then, uh, and then just pray for our time in the Word. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is the way in a world that is chaotic. It is the truth in a land of false truths. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would take this word and and through your spirit, penetrate our lives, our, our hearts, Um, divide between what is true and what is false, and help us to understand that your grace defines who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to have a little bit of fun uh, as we jump into uh, verse 14 today. Uh, So we've spent the, the last three weeks talking about the fact that God's grace saved us in the past It saved us when Christ came and and died on the cross. And then we talked about how God's grace is saving us in this present age, helping us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous way. Uh, And then just last week, right, we we talked about hope and the fact that God will save us. There will be a day where we will be free from everything that is unholy and we will be in God's presence forever. And so today... Uh, we're going to, to begin to think about, okay, the fact that, that God has, has saved us, is saving us, and will save us, what does that change in us right now? What, what, what does that begin to do in, in terms of who we are and what we do? And so today we're going to talk about uh, identity, identity inside of that. As we look at this, this 14th verse, it says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works. So uh, during the pandemic, I think it was, it was around that time, there was this social media trend where people would post something and it would say something along the lines of, I was today years old when I learned. 
Maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't. But the whole idea, right, is that they were sharing something that they didn't know, and now they knew, and it was, you know, your mind-blowing emoji. So I want to share a couple of those. Uh, maybe we'll blow some minds. Maybe you know everything. I don't know. We'll see. But um, here's, here's the first one. I was today years old when I learned that iPhone users can text other iPhones the words pew pew, that's P-E-W, P-E-W, and it sends lasers. Go ahead, reach for your phones. I'm giving you permission. If you don't have an iPhone, sanctification looks different for everybody. All right? Okay? If, if an iPhone sends an iPhone, the words pew pew, it sends lasers. It's true. I tried it before. I, but I, I didn't believe them. I had to try it. Okay? That's fun. That's fun, right? Uh, here's, here's another one. I was today years old. We've got a picture of this. When I learned that your spaghetti spoon, like your pasta spoon, the hole in the middle is one serving of spaghetti. What? You got to be kidding me. Like, how many times has Blake Lawyer made spaghetti for the lawyers and we have like one can of sauce and like 18 servings of noodles? That happens a lot, okay? So I was today years old when I learned that. All right, I'm so excited about this one. I can't even tell you how excited I am for this one. All right, KFC. Okay, KFC. We've got Claudia Sanders just up the road. It's, you know, we are Kentucky, right? KFC. Their thing is, right, they've got a secret blend of 11 herbs and spices. The KFC Twitter account, fact-checked, okay, this is, this is a screenshot. I, I made it. They only follow 11 people. You ready for this? I don't know if you're ready for this. They follow the five Spice Girls and six random dudes named Herb. <laughs> that is fantastic. All right, I was today years old when I learned that KFC follows a secret blend of 11 herbs and spices on Twitter. Like, that's amazing. I love it. I'm sorry. Like, I learned that this week, and I was, I mean, it was genuinely mind blown. All right? So good. It's just so good. Finger looking good. All right, enough. We've got to get back to the Word of God. Here's the idea behind this trend, right? There are all kinds of things that are true and that I'm not aware of and that you're not aware of. Like, that's true, but you didn't know that. Maybe you did. I don't know. If you did, you spend too much time on Twitter. Here's one for our spiritual lives. I was today years old when I learned that I am not my own. When I learned that I am not my own. We may not realize that. We may not live like that. We may feel like we're in control of us. We may really like to be in control. But the truth is, you are not your own. I am not my own. We are not our own. Now, we think that we want to be in control of everything. We want to choose our clothes, our houses, and our spouses. We want to choose our churches, our cars, and our careers. We want to choose where our kids go to school, who gets to be cool, and whether or not we follow the rules in life. Like, we love to be in control. And we convince ourselves that we deserve to have what we want. We deserve that freedom of choice. It's a slippery slope from there. Because those are the, the seedbed ideas that lead to us wanting to choose our identifiers our orientations, our gender. 
we, and when I say we, I mean humanity, we love being able to choose. We are addicted to being in control. It's okay, you can admit it, like it, as much as you don't want to, right? <laughs> you are not your own, we, we, but we love and we're addicted to being in control. And when we learn something new though, right? Even if it's something useless, like who KFC follows on Twitter, that, that idea of learning something new that we never had known before, it reminds us that there is so much that we don't know. And realizing that makes, makes trying to control things or choosing things really overwhelming. Because it's like, well, hold on, I may choose this, I may think this is the best thing, but, but when I realize that there's a, there's a lot out there that I don't know, then it's really overwhelming because I, I might be missing out. I might be making a choice based on bad information. And so this whole idea of control that we're addicted to and we really like is, is actually really overwhelming. The first question of the, the New City Catechism is something that, uh, a curriculum that our kids went through a couple years ago. It, the very first question, it's, it's a system of questions and answers. And, and the, the first one says, what is our only hope in life and death? And then the answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. But rarely do we live that way. Paul uh, is writing about the, the wisdom of the world being foolish in the presence of God. Uh, kind of what we're talking about, right? Like, even as much as we might know, as wise as we might be, the wisest of humans is still foolish in the presence of God. He just knows so much more than we do. And when he's talking about this, he, he concludes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It's this whole idea that, that you are not your own. And, and in a world, right, so vast that we haven't even discovered all the species of bugs yet, we have no hope outside of trusting in a higher being who does know and, and actually is in control. And while we might nod our heads in agreement of that, living that way is an entirely different thing, right? Like, it's really hard to live in light of that reality. Pastor Tim Harris, uh, somebody who's invested in my life, he's a pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church near Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I was listening to one of his sermons recently. He talked about this old map. And this old map is called the, the Ebstorf map. And it, is, it illustrates really well this gap between, between living, like, like believing that we're not our own and actually living that way. So this map was made sometime in the, in the 1230s. Um, if you're not good at math, that's a long time ago. Okay, the 1230s. Now, I, we've got a picture of it, and this picture doesn't do it much justice, okay? But, but let me describe this map for you. 1230s, keep in mind technologies that are available. This map was 12 feet tall by 12 feet wide, huge, and it was made of 30 goat skins sewed together. This map cost us 30 goats, okay? <laughs> but that's huge, right? That, that, that's a big map. And, and if you, like the maps cartographer, the, the guy who made it, was setting out to make a map of the world as best he knew it. Think about trying to take that on without Google Maps, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a map of, of the whole world, everything that I know and I've experienced and I've heard about. So as you begin to navigate this map, like if you could zoom in and look at all the parts and the pieces, uh, it's, it's really cool because it's this unusual mashup of like historical events and geographic realities and, and more. So it kind of became this, 
cross between a map and an encyclopedia. It's telling so much of history while at the same time like being geographically somewhat accurate. Like it's giving you the direction of things. But it has something else that's, that's really unique about it. At the top, which back in those days, the top was east. I don't know why. It's 1230, a long time ago. Okay, But it, it, at the top on these medieval maps, and on this one specifically, is the face of Jesus. And then, whatever they be, north and south, you've got his hands on each side, and, and then at the bottom, his feet. Uh, you can actually even see, like, one of the, the scar marks in his right hand there, right? Isn't that kind of a, a beautiful picture? Like, this guy is setting out to make a map of the world the, the, as he knows it, and literally the whole world is in his hands. But what's even more impressive, right? What, what, what's even more kind of poignant is that you can't see it in this one, but, but right in the middle is Jerusalem. And it's got a picture of the walls of Jerusalem, but the picture inside of Jerusalem is a picture of the resurrection. For this guy, whoever made this map back in 1230, sewed 30 goatskins together, 12 by 12, tried to map out the whole world, it's literally Christ holding all things together. And the heart of all those things is the fact that Christ died and came back to life so that others could have life. It's a picture of, of what it really looks like to center our whole lives and world around the gospel, around the truth of grace. For whoever made this map, this world wasn't just a place he lived in with notable points. It was, it was centered on his belief and his faith in Christ. You are not your own. You are not your own. There is a whole world out there that is in his hands, not yours. You see, this grace that we've talked about for the last few weeks, it doesn't just save you. Grace defines you. Christ is at the center of history, and he's at the center of who you are. He and his grace give you the points of identity in the map of your life. And so as we turn to Titus 2.14, we're going to look at three ways grace defines who you are. Grace defines who you are. Three ways. Number one, grace gives you value. The beginning of the verse says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Your value is often reflected in what you think about yourself. So if you're a thinker in the, cloud, in the crowd today, uh, in the cloud, ha, <laughs> If you're a thinker in the crowd today, my hope is that, that grace is defining who you are, but it's, it's giving you a sense of relief knowing that grace gives you value. Grace gives you, here's the value that you have. God thought so much of you that he was willing to pay the price of his son. How much were you worth to him? You were worth the life of his son. That's high worth. But why would God give so much for you? I mean, I like each of you. I love most of you. I, I, I love all of you and like most of you. I think I said that backwards. <laughs> but Jesus was will, uh, God was willing to give the price of his son. That was his value on you. Why would he give so much? Because he created you. He created you. Have you ever heard of the TV show Antique Roadshow? Anybody heard of that? All right, if you haven't, uh, or if you're just shy and don't want to raise your hand. Essentially, people bring old stuff they find in their house, hoping that it's some expensive antique, and experts tell them if it's worth anything. 
So uh, there was one show filmed in Texas, and this guy brought in a painting of a Mexican construction worker uh, in Spanish. The name of the painting is El Abanil. And it's this picture of this guy. We've got the picture, right? He's standing there with his shovel, and he's ready to go build something, I guess. And the guy who brings this painting in, he shared that his family had purchased the painting in Mexico somewhere around 1930. And he says, since then, it hung on a wall in, uh, in a family member's home behind a closet door. No one ever saw it. It was just there. So the expert's looking the painting over. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm, yes. She's asking all these questions, and um, she notes the painter's signature above the date, uh, 1904. The name above 1904 is Diego Rivera, and he had painted the painting at the age of 18. And it was the first of many for one of the most famous artists in all of Latin America. And it had gone missing, quote-unquote, in, you guessed it, 1930. Like, whoa. Like, this, this is the thing. This is it. And so she's looking at the painting, and she's looking at the owner. And she says very calmly, I would value this painting between 800000 and a million dollars. And the guy's like, do what? You've got to be kidding me. That was in 2013. Most recent prices have it between $1.2 and $2.2 million. Hanging behind the closet door. It's Labor Day weekend. Go home, start cleaning the house. You never know what you might find, right? You may feel like an old thing hiding behind the closet door. You may feel unseen. You may wonder if anybody's noticed. But your value isn't determined by where you're found in life. It's determined by who created you. You see, he gave himself to redeem us. God is actually buying you back. You were lost to sin, hung up on a wall that separated you from God, and still he is willing to pay the highest price. He's willing to outbid the highest bidder to buy you back. His grace gives you value. You are not your own because he has paid the price. Paul applies this, this idea really practically in 1 Corinthians. I want us to check this out because this is, this is huge for the, for the current moment that we're in, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 7, 23 says this, You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of people. You know what happens in between those two verses? In between those, Paul breaks down how sexual relationships should function. He talks a lot about marriage and what's good and what's right and what's healthy and what's not. And so we can begin to see that as he bookends this conversation, that, that when we don't understand that God's grace gives us our value, or we don't understand the high value that God places on you, that you're not your own, and he's bought you back at the highest price, then it wreaks, I mean, it wreaks havoc on your sexuality. This is huge. We, we, we have to understand this, that God's grace gives you value. No person can give you the value that God gives you. Not your spouse, not a friend, not a boyfriend or girlfriend, not a parent. No one has given up what God has to buy you back. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. 
Isaiah 43.1 says, Now this is what the Lord says. This isn't what Blake says. This isn't what Joe says. This isn't what my spouse says. This is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. God was saying this about the people of Israel, but what God has said about the people of Israel is true of you too. Grace defines who you are by giving you value. It also defines who you are by giving you belonging, by giving you belonging. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Belonging is about feeling connected. If you're a feeler, God's grace in in this is, is a huge relief to know that grace gives you belonging. It makes you feel connected. To understand this, we need to think a little bit uh, more deeply about Paul's audience that he's writing to who are on the island of Crete. Uh, We're actually going to go back to God's chosen people, the Jews. Since the day God called Abram to leave his family and become a holy nation unto God, the Jews have been God's chosen people, and the world knew about it. It was no secret. The Jews were his, and the world knew it. And the people in Crete weren't Jews. That made them Gentiles. But when Jesus came, Paul teaches us that he came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, Romans 1.16. And that changed everything. Now all who weren't Jews could become a people for God's own possession. They could belong to God. But, but when your whole life had been characterized as not belonging to this group of people called God's people... Hearing that in Christ you did belong to God was a little bit disorienting. Like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to act like a Jew now? Am I supposed to, like, assimilate to their way of life? Paul actually encouraged them not to pay attention to the Jewish ways in his letter to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, And may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. So this phrase, then, is is really radical. You see, belonging isn't about the actions you take. It's about the action God takes to make you his. Belonging isn't about doing things to fit in. Belonging is about God cleansing for himself a people for his own possession. When you are in Christ, you belong with, in, and to him. And because of that, you don't have to belong to anyone else. You don't have to. Because you belong to the creator of the universe. Caitlin uh, had a sister, has a sister, sorry, named Alyssa. (laughs) Love you, Alyssa, if you're watching online. When she was younger, she did what a lot of young kids do. She would get stuck staring at other people. A lot. (laughs) And so Sherry uh, would simply say to her, Alyssa, sweetie, you're with this family. <laughs> Isn't that so true? It would break, when she'd say this, right, it would break Alyssa's stare and she would re-engage with her family most of the time that she belonged to. And, and, and honestly, it's one of those fun family phrases now that gets repeated. There are some kids that I know that have this problem and we have to say, hey, I won't name them by names. You belong with this family. Right? You belong here. It also reminds us of how belonging to God affects us. How many times in life do we find ourselves in a deep stare hoping that we can find a way to fit in with a group of people at work or school 
There are people in the community that are doing things that we would like to be doing. I mean, how many times do we find ourselves in a deep stare, hoping to fit in with a certain economic or social status? And when you find yourself in that stare, when you find your brother and sister in Christ in that stare, I hope that we hear the words of Titus 2.14 calling you back. He gave himself to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. You belong to this family. God doesn't want you to be like someone else so that you feel like you belong. He wants you to know that you belong to him. You are his people. That's who you are. He will cleanse you. You don't have to be like us even because you get to be like him. And together, we become the body of Christ. Grace gives you value. Grace gives you belonging. And lastly for today, it gives you purpose. After all this, he says they are eager to do good works. Purpose is about what you do. It's about action. So if you're a doer in the room, Hearing that grace gives you purpose brings this relief of knowing that you don't have to incessantly search for purpose. God and his grace are giving it to you. Now, Paul speaks more about this one in verse 15, which is next week. So, doers, you get to come back next week. All right? We're not even going to spend any more time on it because we've got to apply and finish this sermon first. Being reminded that grace gives you value and belonging and purpose is, is fantastic. feels good. It's the good news of the gospel. That's why that works. He gave himself so that you could have those things. But the gospel always brings active change to our lives. So, so what do we do with this? How, how do we apply having our identity rooted in God's grace? I want us to know something, notice something about how Paul says this in verse 14. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. You see, as Paul is writing this master class on grace right here in this little letter to Titus, Paul doesn't have in view uh, the individuals who are following Christ when he writes. He, he, is, he is envisioning this community of people. This isn't an individualistic message. This is for the body, the group, it would have been much easier for Paul to say, you know, Titus, just grab the ones from the island of Crete that get it. Just go find the ones who have already started following after Jesus hard. They've given their lives and they're all in. Get them and let's go do some ministry. But he doesn't. It's never not on Paul's radar that grace was defining each person to become part of, of a larger us, a larger people. You see, who you are matters to who we are. That's still true today. Who you are matters to who we are. So there's some responsibility that you have to find your identity in Christ because when you don't, it affects us. Let me show you by summarizing the sermon to this point. What we try to control ends up controlling us because we are not our own. And instead, grace is supposed to define who we are because we belong to God. But let's say for a moment that instead of letting go of control and allowing God to define who we are, we keep trying to control things. Those things, in turn, control us because we become obsessed with them. And when things begin to control us, we slip into this little thing called victim mindset. All of a sudden, you blame others for the way your life is. 
I'm just not in control. Things are happening to me. Can't help it. And when you start blaming others, it makes it really hard to be us. You begin to truly think that life is against you. You just don't trust others because everybody's out to get you. And that mistrust of others makes it really hard to be us. Victim mindset causes you to feel stuck in life and to approach things with a negative attitude. You can't understand why nobody wants to be around you. Again, making it really hard to be us. And then things start to spiral. This is where it gets really tricky because feeling bad for yourself gives you a false sense of relief. Like you, you enjoy that idea of, of being the victim. And so you return to it like a drug instead of turning to relationship with others and with God like God intended. And the more you repeat these behaviors and these mindsets, right, that victim mindset turns into a victim identity. Not only is the world against me, that's just who I am. I am a victim of my circumstances. And when that becomes who you are, before long, you attract people who blame others and complain about their life. You, you feel attacked when someone tries to offer feedback or to help you with something. When you're slipping into a victim identity, it's difficult for you to examine yourself and make changes because you're unsure of who you are. You're not being reminded that grace defines who you are, giving you value and belonging and purpose. Now, maybe you're in the middle of this right now. You're feeling really seen and you're like, all right, Lord, I hear you. Maybe you can identify because you have been there. You're not there today, but you've been there before. Maybe you're sitting in self-righteousness saying, that ain't me. I don't know where you are. But I'm here to tell you, we are all on level ground. It could be you. Because that victim mindset can catch anybody at any time. But if there's one application today from knowing that grace gives you value and, and belonging and purpose, it's this. Don't let a victim mindset turn into a victim identity. Trust me, I get it. Your circumstances placed you in a position that made you susceptible to that addiction. But you are not an addict. That is not who you are. God's grace defines who you are. Your circumstances, I, I get it, they, they, they are traumatic. You couldn't do anything about what happened to you. I, I understand. But what happened to you shouldn't happen to anybody else. I, like, I, I, I can empathize with that. And it seems unfair that you're left to deal with the pieces, yes. But what happened to you does not define you. God's grace defines who you are. You made a lot of choices in life before you understood the ramifications for them. And, and now you're a victim of, of, even of your own circumstances. But I'm here to tell you, those decisions don't define you. God's grace defines who you are. Life happens, right? Years happen. Different ages come with different limitations. But you are not a victim of your age or of your limitations. That doesn't define you. God's grace defines who you are. I get it. Right now, more than ever, the world is telling you to follow your heart and be who you want to be. What an unfair ask. What an unfair ask. That is too much for our broken hearts to handle. No one can thrive with that kind of pressure. You are not a victim of the world's pressure. That doesn't define you. God's grace defines who you are. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So let grace, let that define who you are. 
Your value is Christ's life. You belong to him, and he gives you purpose. So don't let a victim mindset become a victim identity. As the band comes, uh, let me share one last Jesus story. In Jesus' day, there was, uh, there was this place in Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. And by this gate was a pool that they called Bethesda. And at the Bethesda pool, there was a reputation for uh, people being healed. Somebody would come and stir the waters, and the, the idea or the belief was that the first person in the water, after the waters were stirred, would be healed. So that led to kind of a unique situation because what would happen is that the disabled and the diseased would just lay around the pool waiting for the water to be stirred, and then they would try to get in, have someone carry them in, right? Like, I just want to get in the, the healing waters. It just so happened that there was a guy by the Bethesda pool who had laid on his mat for 38 years. In two years, I might be able to, like, empathize with that. I, I'm not even there yet. 38 years, this, this guy had laid on a mat. Now, if you've lived somewhere 38 years, that feels like a part of who you are. It feels like part of your identity. I'm a Shelbyvillian, although I'm not. If you've done just about anything for 38 years, if you've worked in a place for 38 years, if you've been a dad for 30, like if you've done anything for 38 years, it feels like a part of who you are. It feels like a part of your identity. This guy had laid on a mat for 38 years. Probably felt a little bit of like who he was. So Jesus comes up to this guy and he asks him a question. John chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's a filter question, right? Has victim mindset become a victim identity for this man? Well, for this guy who'd been there for 38 years, victim mindset had turned into victim identity a long time ago. Verse 7, Sir, the disabled man answered, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. It ain't my fault. I can't get healed because I can't get to the water. Right? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? When Jesus sees his victim identity, he sees his disability. Surely Jesus is just going to stick around, carry him to the water, do something miraculous. Not really. Jesus says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Significant. Jesus didn't pick him up. He empowered him to pick himself up. And in doing that, he reminded him in one simple command that his identity was not to be that of a victim, but of a victor in Christ. This man who had been laying on a mat for 38 years had value, belonging, and purpose because of Christ. Because of Christ. Long story short, the guy picks up his mat and walks, and, and Jesus circles back to him later and says, Look, you are well. Like, you, you are well now. So don't sin anymore. Don't let any of that victim mentality stuff creep back in. Walk in this new identity. Walk in this new life so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Don't go back, in other words, to that, to that victim identity. Don't go back to that victim mentality. So we respond to the good news of the gospel today, that grace defines who you are, 
One of you might need to answer the question that Jesus asked that man. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Because Jesus is asking it, and he wants to empower you. He wants to empower you to walk in newness of life. In newness of life. If you're sitting here today and, and you've given yourself over to a victim mindset, I, I just want you, to, I want you to get up just like that man did who'd been laying on, on his mat for 38 years. Get up, come to the back, and let's pray together and seek the God who's going to tell you to get up and take your mat and walk and give you a new life and purpose and identity. For those of you who are baptized believers in Christ, we want to invite you to the table. The invitation and, and the reminder are the same. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. As we come to communion, we proclaim that at the table this morning. Let me pray for us and let's respond together. Jesus, save us. Save us. Save us from a world that is clamoring for pieces of our identity. Save us from a world that is trying to, to chip away at us and take pieces of us away. Help us, Lord, to be rooted and find our identity in you and who you say that we are. Remind us over and over and over again that you give us value and belonging and purpose. And if we will continue to run to you, to get up our mat, get, take up our mat and walk, we will find that value. We will find that belonging. We will find that purpose again and again and again. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be in this place as we respond. That for anyone who, who needs to courageously get up and respond to, to the good news of the gospel, that they would do so, that they would feel no shame, they would be free from the attacks of the enemy and would walk in newness of life. And for each of us here, Lord, who, who are, are part of the body and we're, we're getting ready to come to the table and, and to be reminded of your sacrifice that makes all those things possible, Lord, I pray that you would impress deeply on our spirits who we are in you and that we, we would not allow ourselves to go back to the old way of life but that we would each day find more and more ways to walk in newness of life that you have given to us. Spirit, help us in this moment as we respond to the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, we hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's, let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ Community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in an experienced Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.